In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week, we actually finished chapter one. So, congrats, I'm very proud of us. <laughs> and we, we spent quite a bit of time on the concept of repentance with an emphasis on confession specifically within the process of repentance. So, before we move on to chapter 2, any questions that maybe was just uh, still on your mind? Anything unsettled? Okay, okay. So, let's read just the first couple of verses in chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the appropriation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay. Good. Take just a second to read that again personally, and then we'll meditate on it. Alright, so my little children, these things are right to you, that you may not sin. So, why is he writing? That we may not sin. But, what does that really mean? What does that really mean to say, to not sin? That's what separates you from God. Perfect. If we have an accurate idea of sin, this will make a lot more sense. What is our understanding of sin? What is the definition of it? What is, what is the actual word? What is the Greek word? Is it deviation? It is. That's what the word implies. Or miss the mark. To mi exactly. To miss the mark. The word is amartias. The Greek for sin is amartias. Now, if you define the word literally, it is to actually be off the mark. It is to just miss that bullseye. So it's not like a, a sort of like great system. Anything that's not in the bullseye is off the mark, which is sin. So he's writing so that we're not off the mark. So we don't miss the goal. What is the goal? Christ. Christ. To be united with Christ. <coughs> Perfect. So he's writing this message to us that nothing compromises our ability to hit the mark. Nothing compromises our goal. Nothing compromises our union with Christ. Because anything that compromises our ability to hit the mark is sinful. The sin is the missing of the mark. So, this now just kind of like broadens this concept of our spiritual life as a whole. Because a lot of times we kind of Gonna go with this uh, this concept like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anyone. Like, I, I'm sure like the Sunday school teachers have heard this a million times. Like, whenever somebody's talking about what they do at home, I'm just playing video games. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not doing anything wrong. Sure, but you're playing video games for like five hours. <laughs> you're not doing anything productive with your life. You're not praying, reading, serving, you're not helping your parents with the chores at home, you're not really hitting the mark. Just because you're not doing anything evil doesn't mean you're not off the mark. Does that make sense? So the, the point is not just to avoid evil. The point is not just to say, well, this isn't a sin, quote-unquote. 
Like, I'm not looking at porn on social media. But what happens if I'm just on social media for five hours every day? You see how it kind of just still takes you off the more. And one of the, the one of the most like devious methods the devil uses for us to miss the mark is whenever we are fooled to think something is not quote unquote a sin and so we count it permissible. We justify it, right? We could so easily justify a million things. That's why St. Paul, after writing to the Corinthians about um, how to live the spiritual life, he said, look, at the end of the day, all things are lawful for me, but... But what? But not all things edify. So, we gotta like think about the spiritual life, I think, more in the sense of like playing offense, more in the sense of pursuing Christ, not necessarily thinking that I just have to be on defense, avoid this, don't do that, don't do that, but the point is to actually pursue Christ. The point is to seek Him. It's like a sports team that just plays defense all day, all they do is just don't let the other team score, don't let the other team score, don't let the other team score. Alright, that's fine, but <laughs> you gotta score too. Like, if you're not playing offense, you're not gonna win. And the reality is, the essence of the spiritual life is offense. The essence of the spiritual life is pursuing, seeking, working towards them. The essence is not just to battle sin. Breaking away from sin is one of the first and most important steps. And so from the start of our spiritual path, we separate from whatever is holding us down. That's why when God called Abraham, He said, leave everything behind, leave your family, whatever, leave your, this place that you're in, and go to this new place. The disciples, they forsook all and followed Him. Anytime somebody's going to start their spiritual life, yes, there is that breaking away from whatever is in the past, whatever is holding me back. But... When I take that first step, now my mindset is just offense. If I continue to look back, what really happens? What happens when I'm, when I'm more concerned about resisting the sin than pursuing the goal? Many times you actually fall into that sin. <laughs> you do fall into it. You give it more attention. And... What's even worse is that you may not actually fall, and so you're full to thinking, well, I didn't fall into it, so this is fine. I'm just going to continue to battle against it. But then you just gave all your time, your energy, your effort into... Your, your attention is going into the sin. And so our focus should be to pursue Him, not to resist the sin. So the fathers are actually very, very big on this when it comes to thoughts. What is the best way to resist an evil thought? A good thought. A good thought. You do not resist the evil thought by giving it attention and resisting it. So one of the most futile attempts is to try to do that. The, the, all the ascetic fathers are very big on this because what happens is you continue to give it more attention and even if you don't necessarily dwell on it, now you're dwelling on battling it without really giving your attention to who? Christ. Who's the goal? So we got to stop 
resisting those thoughts by giving them more attention. We do resist, but the only way we efficiently resist is whenever we give Christ our attention. So, it only makes sense that he says this after he talks about walking in the light, right? He's talking about being united with Him. And being in the truth. And then He says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. So the only way to not sin is to what? Walk in the light. The only way to not be in darkness is you keep the lights on. You can't run away from the darkness and expect to find yourself in right. You have to actually pursue the light. Okay? Any thoughts or comments on that? So what, when you say my little children, what does it mean? I think he's... So, St. John actually is... It's quite old when he's writing this. So everyone to him is, <laughs> is a little child. But he's writing in a sense of just a fatherly figure. In a sense of like the fatherly love. Like um, he's embracing everyone and bringing them under his wings. Like a shepherd. What's the Arabic? Yeah, Atfal al Sagar. Yeah, it's just similar, yeah. Okay. So similar. And he's he's really writing like from the bottom of his heart. Like this is a that's why this is a very intimate letter. It's a very intimate letter. He's writing as if they're his own children. But he he's not writing to biological children. So, he says, right after that, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, how is Jesus Christ an advocate? Or, better yet, what is an advocate? Hmm? Fights and speaks for you. Fights and speaks for you. Perfect. Someone pleads your case, right? If you go a little deeper into this word, it's interesting that this word advocate is the word paraclete. It's the word paraclete. So, where do we usually find this word ascribed to? The Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. So, here it's very clear, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit, right? He's saying, who's the paraclete? Christ. Okay. So this is very, very interesting. Definitely warrants a little bit more attention right here. Okay? Because we almost always think this word is exclusive to the Holy Spirit, right? We even say, Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete in the liturgy. It's like that title we ascribe to Him. Okay. So, let's look at what Origen says about this. Okay. Let us consider whether the title Advocate or Paraclete means one thing when applied to the Savior and another thing when applied to the Holy Spirit. In regard to the Savior, Paraclete seems to mean intercessor. For in Greek, it bears both meanings, comforter and intercessor. But according to the phrase which follows, in which it is said that He is the propitiation for our sins, 
it seems that it must mean intercessor because he intercedes with the Father for our sins. When used of the Holy Spirit, however, the word paraclete ought to be understood as comforter because he provides comfort for the souls to whom he opens and reveals the consciences of spiritual knowledge. Does that make sense? So here he's making a distinction. Distinction is between these two components of the word. In one sense, it is understood as intercessor. In another sense, it is understood as comforter. Okay? Now, of course, Jesus Christ is our comfort. He is our hope. He, he is the one we can confide in. Hebrews tells us that He can sympathize with us. So, of course, who can comfort you more than the one who's been in your shoes and can sympathize with all your pain? But in this case, He wants to make something else clear. That He is the propitiation for our sins. Okay? What does propitiation mean? Mercy. Hmm? Mercy. Close. I'm thinking something along the lines of like atonement almost. Good. It's closer to the sense of appeasing our sins. He is the one who kind of covers our mess. He is the one that can plead our case and because of this precious blood that is shed for us can cover our sins with His sacrifice. And in that sense, He becomes the propitiation because His life is the perfect sacrifice and that is what intercedes for us. That is what, that is what pleads our case. Does that make sense? He says that that this this is what covers the sins for this is this is what covers those who have sinned. So he says the purpose is for you not to sin, but if you do sin, it's not it's not the end. So the purpose is to give you hope. There's hope in knowing that He has covered our sins. It says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Alright. Something even deeper when it comes to the sense of hope and and having Christ as the intercessor and the propitiation for our sins. It's, it's the idea of His position or His place in the context of our judgment. Okay? So think of where He belongs when it comes to our judgment. Alright? Alright, so let's put this in context. This is one of the most beautiful things St. Augustine says. If you should have a case to be tried before a judge and should procure an advocate, you would be accepted by the lawyer and he would plead your case to the best of his ability. Right? If, before he has finished his plea, you should hear that he is to be the judge, how would you rejoice? How you would rejoice? Because he could be your judge who shortly before was your lawyer. So you have a case, and this lawyer picks up the case and he says, look man, 
we're going to try to put together the evidence and everything to plead your case and try to like make the best of this mess and try to like win the judge over. Okay? So he's next to you and then puts together the, the details, the paperwork, all the notes and then you see him just walk over and goes up to the judge's stand. And you're like, what is going on? Like, are you my lawyer or the judge? He's like, I'm going to take care of both ends. How would you react? Like, like case closed. There's no case to be had. Such a beautiful concept. What can give you more hope than that? Knowing that the propitiation for our sins is not an animal sacrifice like the Old Testament. It's Christ Himself. What can plead our case better than Him? Right? There's definitely a concept of the Trinity in this, hmm. this, whole, in this little section, right? Because whether it's Christ being the judge and also the lawyer, is the same person as God the Father, and then I feel like even though I know that the word parplete here is used as Christ's intercessor, part of me also feels that it's kind of like a nod to the Holy Spirit in a way. Yeah, and it it usually is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. It is it's just not exclusive to Him, right. but it usually is. Yeah, yeah. So if, I see that too. So it looks like I mean. Even though he's not necessarily talking about the Trinity, he can't get away from that. Yeah. Is what he's saying. And and the presence of the Father is explicit too, because who is he propitiating? Right. Right. Just a side note too, that we never understand this concept of propitiation in, in the sense of soteriology and how we are saved as if Christ is satisfying the anger of God this is something that was developed more so in the West from uh, Anselm of Canterbury where uh, he, he proposed this theory of penal substitution where God was angry and the wrath of God had to be satisfied. So the son was the one who accepted this wrath because God had to punish someone. And so the son was the only one who was able to bear it and just goes off into all this nonsense. So we never think of soteriology in that sense. That God didn't satisfy the anger of God in the sense of him just being punished by the father. Um, what, what he did was broke the enmity between humanity and the Father and reconciled us to the Father. Does that make sense? All right. So let's read three to six. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Take a moment again to just read them. We'll discuss it.
Alright, what do you think? It calls me back to the first chapter. Right? It, it's, it's definitely like a circular sort of epistle. But what does it bring to mind? Walking in the truth. Walking in the truth, walking in the light. So, he makes it very, very clear what the litmus test would be to figure out if we know him or not. And what is that? Keeping his commandments. That's what determines whether we abide in him or not whether we know Him or not. Right? If we keep His commandments, we can say we know Him. You say you know Him, but you don't keep His commandments. What does that make you? A liar. He says, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. So, the only way I can say I know Him, is if, I keep His commandments. Very straightforward, right? Alright, so what about this concept of knowing Him? Like, what does that what does that mean? If I keep His commandments what does that mean then? By saying I know Him. You're not a liar. Okay, you're in the truth, and you're not a liar. You're you're walking in the truth. But practically speaking, what does that produce? Whenever I keep his commandments, love, love, love God. Perfect. That is the center of the commandments. Perfect. And if I say I know Him, a lot of times we just put that in a theoretical sense. Or at least like in a superficial sense. Like, I know how many books are in the Bible. Or I know what the Igbeya is. Or... I go to liturgy, or something in regards to our knowledge about God. But it's not just to know Him superficially, but knowing Him always implies like a deeper sense. Okay, let's look at what St. Didymus says. So this is going to apply to this word, knowing Him throughout all of Scripture. So this is something very important for us to keep in mind. Often in the Scriptures, the word know means not just being aware of something, but having what? Personal experience of it. Personal experience. She said it without reading it. She was whispering it the whole time. She just didn't want to speak up. (laughs) Given this meaning of the word know, It's clear that anyone who says he knows God must also keep his commandments. For the two things go together. Okay, so, if I keep his commandments, that means I know him. But knowing him means a personal experience, a relationship. So, keeping his commandments means having a personal relationship, having a personal experience. There's no way I can say I have a relationship with Christ if I am not actively trying to keep the commandments, if I'm not living in obedience to His Word. And a lot of times, the two build each other. You know what I mean? It's almost like the two feed off each other. I come closer to Him, I, I increase in 
my love for him. And love is essentially what fuels me to keep his commandments. All of the difficult commandments become sweeter because it, it becomes a pleasure to sacrifice to him because of the love that's in my heart for him. You know, maybe like a couple in the beginning of their marriage might just find it like a big burden to do things for each other. But with time they grow in love and the things that used to really bother one of the spouses is a pleasure because they know that sacrifice is out of love and then it becomes easier. So keeping the commandments is very similar to that. The more we grow in love with Him, the sweeter it is to abide in His commandments. And the more I keep His commandments, the more I experience Him. Because keeping His commandments is what keeps me in line with His will. So I, I'm in line with His will, I continue to walk as He walked, I become like Him, and I have a deeper relationship with Him. Does that make sense? Alright. One other point that I want to mention about keeping the commandments. Other commandments, generally speaking, easy or hard? Generally? Generally speaking. <laughs> generally it's easy to not kill and to not <laughs> But then there's the levels of it. Okay. Very good. There is definitely commandments we struggle with, commandments we don't. Okay? Can we really distinguish between our ability to fulfill one commandment from the other? As if I should be able to do this, but I shouldn't be able to do that? Why not? Okay, that's true. Like you qualify them on the same scale. What else, though? Does the same James say, if you break one law, or break one sin, you're guilty of one? Yes. So the oral, the, the breaking one of the commandments is breaking the whole law. So we don't belittle one because, again, it goes back to the definition of sin. You miss the mark, you miss the mark, right? Now, there are different consequences of the degree by which you miss the mark. But you can't say you didn't miss the mark um, just because it was by a little bit. A sin is a sin. But I want, what I want to get at is... Sometimes we do it, says like this. White, uh... Like a white lie. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And and it's because those habits we have growing up. But we have to be honest with ourselves. Yeah. yeah. We were all guilty of that. Well, what I want to get at in regards to. Our, our accountability to fulfill the commandments is equal across the board. Why? Because there is a natural grace that comes from God with every commandment. Does that make sense? Okay, let, let me elaborate. With every commandment that is given, comes with it the grace, the ability, and the power to fulfill it. Or else, it would be quite unfair of God to command it. <laughs> how, like, how could you command... Like, you can't command Josiah to walk. 
Like, <laughs> there's no way. He just doesn't have the ability to. Okay? But, in a few months, when he's walking, you expect him to walk. So, he might not really understand you yet, but if he would, and you ask him to walk, it would be a fair request. So, what I want to get at is with every command, there's a fair expectation for us to fulfill it. So, I, I, I don't hold a sense of partiality or bias with this really, really tough command and say, ah, that's not for me, I really don't have the ability to fulfill that. Like, love your enemies, uh, like, those are for the saints. The sell all that you have and give to the poor, those commandments are for the monks. The pray without ceasing, that's for, like, the bishop <laughs> or the priest. <laughs> no, with every command comes the grace to fulfill it. And that's why I will be held accountable for whether I fulfill the commandments or not. Because He Himself gives me the ability to do so. I just have to be willing to receive His grace and receive His strength to, to fulfill the commandments. Well, St. Paul says that like, Christ won't tempt you more than you do. When exactly. When temptation comes, there's a, there's a way out. Right? Just, exactly. That is perfect. When it comes to the struggles, when it comes to whatever you're going through, He gives you the ability to be like Him, no matter what. And it's a, it's a process, of course. Little by little we grow in our obedience to the commandments, and we become like Him. Okay? But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. Here again is just that, that union, right? It goes back to like being united with Christ. That we are in him. And this would not be possible if he did not assume our nature. That's why from the very first couple of words, what did he talk about? The Incarnation. From the start of the epistle, he says straight away, He whom we have heard and seen, hands have handled, right? Because he assumed our nature, he united us with him. And so, the purpose of the Incarnation is for us to live now in unity with Him. He made our union with Him possible. Okay? And so, we bring that potential into its actual fulfillment when we abide by His Word. Right? And we are in Him. Whoever keeps His Word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. And by this we know that we are in Him. He who abides in Him ought Himself to also walk just as He walked. So He says in Him three times and He says to abide also which denotes the same sort of concept. It's just all about being united with Him. Okay? Alright. Let's... Uh, Let's move on from there. Any questions though? Comments? Pretty straightforward? Okay. Who wants to read 7 and 8? Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay. 
read that one more time and uh, we'll talk about it right after. What did you notice here? The old and new seem the same thing. There's, there's... He switched it up on himself. Like, right? He said, I am not writing a new commandment. And then he said, I'm writing a new commandment. <laughs> exactly. Like, St. John seems to be a little confused. <laughs> Alright, so. That's my question to you. Is it an old or a new commandment? Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Then what? Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Alright, so, what, what is it? An old one or a new one? Like, what's going on here? Is he reestablishing it, in a way, as a reminder? Okay. He is not re-establishing it. He's saying it has been, in a sense, redefined. Okay. I can't resist by sharing this story from Father Thomas Hoppe. So, in a podcast, he's talking about his visit to this uh, to this church, and then. Um, he walks into the church and he's sitting with the, the pastor, the priest of that parish. And, uh, he, you know, Father Thomas Hopka is like a big theologian. So he looks up to the writing uh, above the iconostasis and he says, um, Father, this, uh, this uh, scripture is not right. It says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And, and then he says, Father Tom, what do you mean? That, that, that's in the Bible. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 that, that's not right. It's not right at all. Then he's like, still confused. He's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? This is straight out of the Bible. And then he's like, no, I'm telling you, that's not right. And he's like, I didn't put it up there. <laughs> so he goes to finally break it to him. He says, the problem is, the phrase is incomplete. It's written, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. The commandment to love one another is not new at all. It's straight out of the Old Testament multiple times. I'm not going to go through the references, but he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Later, when it was written in Greek, they added mind because... You know, the, the Greeks like to, you know, focus on that. So they wanted to just really carry the same weight of the commandment to love God with their whole being. Right? So in the Testament, it says, Love the Lord God all by our mind, soul, strength, and your heart. So when Christ said this, there was more to it. Right? What did he really say? A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. Okay? Where is the new there? That, that, that commandment is new, but what's new about it? Say, say that again, Jean? To the point of dying for one So, that, that's what he did. For his love, right? So what's new about it is that as I have loved you, that's new to all of us. <laughs> that's a new concept of love. So 
A new commandment I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Humanity had no clue what real love was until Christ was crucified on the cross. I mean, yeah, we had an idea, and the prophets had a, a glimpse of it. The patriarchs saw it, foreshadowed. Abraham, like Christ said, saw my day and he rejoiced. He saw the lamb hung on the tree as a figure of the crucifixion. But th those were all like little pieces. Whenever we actually saw Christ, our Creator, wash His disciples' feet, whenever we saw Him forgive those who insulted Him, whenever we saw Him love us to the extent that He is hung on the cross, naked and humiliated, that's, that's a new type of love. That totally redefines love. So, St. John was really not confused. <laughs> he says, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Okay? Now, listen to how he clarifies this next part. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in who? In Him. And in you. So, wh where can one notice that this is new in who? Christ. In Christ. It's, it's really quite ironic. Like, the paradox here is beautiful. He says... It's not new, but in Him it is. Because in Christ is the renewed definition of love. The love by which God loved us with all along, but we had not yet witnessed it until the fulfillment of that time. Jean, look like you're about to... I was just going to ask, he's, he's referring to all the commandments? When he's saying a new commandment? He, I think he's referring to love itself. Okay. And, and, I mean, that, in a sense, is how Christ summarized the commandments as a whole. In loving God and your neighbor. And I, I mentioned, I think, either last week or the week before, whenever St. Paul is writing to the Galatians, he actually forgets about both components and just says the commandment is summarized in one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, um, just like Dad said, it really comes down to love. Comes down to that. And, and love in, in our understanding of of it as He showed us. Love, not according to our definition of it, but according to what He showed us. The love by which He loved us. The love that is unconditional. I mean, it, it had no partiality, no bias. It had no self-ambition. like what, It's not this what's in it for me type of love. Okay, I'm going to serve you, but what's in it for me? Now, I'm going to give you my time, but what do I get out of it? It's not I'm going to love you, but you better be nice to me too. Like It's not I'm going to forgive you if you straighten up. No, I'm just going to forgive you because I love you, period. And how many times do I forgive you? There's seven times seven. There's, there's no end. That's that's how he defined love, and that's why, that right there, that's the standard. That's the standard. So the difference between the old and the new commandment, it's really the same commandment, but the new one is in him, as opposed to the old one not in him, because we, he hadn't come yet to redeem yeah. us. Yeah. 
And, and again, going back to what you mentioned about the commandments as a whole, can we really love like Him? Can you really love like Christ? Only by grace. Yeah, you better say yeah. What were we just talking about? There, there's no partiality in the commandments. We're trying. Yes, we can, but like one not doing. St. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ. It is Him who works in me to love like Him. And so, I have to maintain that reality, that He can work in me to be all that He is, to love as He loved. He is capable of giving me His heart. So, everything that we do to come closer to Him, is to increase in that grace. And then, in its apex, when we come and partake of His body and His blood, we walk out of church, like Christ, to have His ears, to listen to those who are burdened, to have His mouth, to give words of comfort, to have His hands to minister, to have everything that He is, to love as He is. So we take Him and we walk out with Him in us, with Him working through us and in us. Does that make sense? Alright. So, take five. <laughs> Meditate on that and just to really pray and think about how that can apply to us personally and then um, we'll, uh, we'll pray together.